Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Linda Cass about her debut novel, Toss's Song. Many novels examine the Holocaust, but on the whole, the events associated with the Eastern Front of World War II remain relatively unknown in the West. Yet this region was both the main goal and the primary target of Hitler's aggression, the location of the Lebensraum he intended to conquer. Linda Cass takes a much-needed look at this less familiar history in Toss's song, set in the territory annexed by the USSR as a result of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939. Originally eastern Poland, the region surrounding Lvov Lviv is today the western portion of Ukraine. The majority of the six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust lived in eastern Europe and the USSR. Not all died at the hands of the Nazis. Local hatreds also played a role. But by the end of the war, centuries-old Jewish communities had been, to all intents and purposes, annihilated. This brutal reality explains the fear that drives the opening of the novel. In the Blackness of the Night, Eastern Poland, March 1943. It was a night like others she had shared with Danik. He came to Tassa's bed after everyone was slumbering, and the house beat with silence. The two of them whispered their feelings and fears, relishing the comfort of their stolen privacy. She knew that just before dawn, Danik would rouse himself and leave her to awaken alone, the imprint of his body still fresh beside her. But for now they drifted in each other's arms. She'd just begun to float away when a rush of footsteps pulled her back. Her father burst into the bedroom. The shock on his face told her he was not there out of suspicion. His eyes, wide with another urgency, settled on Danik before he spoke. His voice was sharp. We have fifteen minutes to gather our belongings. Take only what you absolutely need. Make sure you're wearing and packing warm clothes, as much as you can carry. We must leave before the Germans come for us. At that, Solomon stepped out the door. Tassa stared into Danik's eyes, her heart pounding. Neither moved right away. She planted a quick kiss on his cheek before she pushed him from the room. Foggy from sleep, her head began spinning. Her father's brisk orders pulsated in her ears. She tried to organize her thoughts, to focus on the task at hand. The village was buried in a deep layer of snow and ice. She pulled on her thickest corduroy pants, heaviest sweater, and warmest socks. Put aside her winter jacket, snow boots, and sheepskin Ushanka hat. Into a large burlap satchel, she began stuffing an assortment of warm clothes, socks, flannel nightgowns. She looked around her room. What was she missing? In a moment of sudden clarity, she slid open her desk drawer to collect her journal and pen, the final note from her mother, the old family photo she had long ago found in her attic, a hairbrush. She eyed the blue enamel box atop her nightstand with her collection of letters and added it to her bag. She scanned the room one last time. Her violin rested next to the nightstand. She froze at that instant, stunned by her lapse. How could she not have considered it before all else? Her body trembled at the thought of what might have happened, that she could lose the one possession she found most precious. 
She seized her instrument and slung the satchel strap across her shoulder. And now, please join me in welcoming Linda Cass. Hi, Linda. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm thrilled to, to be here. Your website details a really interesting career, beginning with a degree in journalism and extending to community action and fundraising. How did this path lead you to writing fiction? Well, Carolyn, it's it's sort of an interesting story. Um, much of my life kind of happens through serendipity, really. You know, I have a journalism background, as you said, and I became really the um, hist- family historian, ensuring really that future generations would understand where they came from. And I'm a first-generation American, so I did some interviews with my parents back in the 80s. And then I left those typewritten facts in a drawer. And about Ten years ago, my sister prodded me to transform this history into a gift to honor my parents on their upcoming 60th wedding anniversary. So, you know, I dug out my pages of events and people and places uh, of the past and needed a little help in, even though I certainly was a professional writer or journalist, to make it really creative in how I would present this and had just serendipitously met um, a professor at Ohio State University. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, met him at a, uh, I was invited to a, a book club event where he was a featured speaker. He, he was a great, great author, writer, and um, in fact, uh, his book at that time, 10 years ago, um, was a Pulitzer finalist. So I um, met him and, and told him sort of of my dilemma, and he encouraged me to take some of his courses uh, at Ohio State. Um, so I, I took some workshops with him, and um, that inevitably certainly led to um, this wonderful memento that was for my own family that combined the narratives of my parents' early experiences with, you know, I had some sepia-colored old photographs and whatnot, and, and a wonderful gift that I had made for them. But in the process, he kind of encouraged me to also take his fiction writing classes, which I did, and um, just got hooked um, on that. So that's really where my kind of interest in fiction and moving from journalism, from being a journalist to a novelist, uh, occurred. So you took classes, which is one way that you made that transition. Did you do other things? I mean, how did you go about actually crafting these memoirs and interviews into a a story? I crafted it into this just personal uh, story for my family and made copies for my family members um, that was included really the lives of each of my parents and up to the point where they met and married. And that was the purpose of that particular memento. Um, And it was, you know, gift to them for their 60th wedding anniversary. But then about five years um, ago, um, my husband and I visited our daughter um, during her college semester abroad in Berlin, um, and we took a side trip to Krakow, which is my first time in Poland. So I had been working up until this point during these years on crafting and learning to better craft uh, short stories, actually, and I was working on a short story collection. And yet, when I got back from this trip to Poland, um, my mother's life really came flooding back, um, uh, with a lot of unanswered questions circulating in my head, um, really universal questions about the human experience of survival, um, and particular questions about how people like my mother pers- persevered through hardship, um, uh, given that she um, lived in eastern Poland and, um, you know, really escaped, um, you know, uh, quite, quite a bit of, of, of uh, the kind of... Um, 
tra- tra- brutality, really, um, that a lot of those living in more central Poland experienced. She was really on the fringes of the battlefield in eastern Poland, but she did have to um, really uh, escape oppression, first from the Soviets and then the um, the Germans. So she, she had quite a, a story to tell, and, and, and I, I knew of that story my whole life. So as most of my guests know by now, I'm a historian by training, and I've talked elsewhere about how it helps and how in some ways it didn't help uh, in terms of writing historical fiction. Do you have a similar experience with journalism? Are there things that it gave you or things that got in the way? Uh, Well, I think um, journalism gave me a discipline, (laughs) certainly. Uh, I'm used to deadlines, and I... I, um, uh, you know, know how to tell a story. I know a good story. And I'm a solid writer. I think where journalism, I had to kind of get over myself as a journalist was that I was telling a story. And I needed to let the story take me where it would. So, um, you know, that was really uh, um, learning the craft of fiction um, and 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 doing more of the showing rather than the telling. You know, in journalism, you do a lot of telling. And um, in, in fiction, you do a lot of showing in the way you write. So that, that was something I learned. Um, in historical fiction, though, journalism really helped me a lot because I, I really loved research. And um, I was really able to um, pull together so much of uh, the concrete world um, at, at that time and place to create the kind of authenticity that is needed in telling a story that takes place back in the, you know, my, my story t- takes place from 1933 to 1947. Yeah, it's very similar then. I mean, research is the, um, the big skill that historians bring to it too and, and getting away, from, in a sense, away from that so that you capture an individual experience in the moment is, is the hard part. Yeah, Exactly. So let's talk about Tassa's song uh, itself, the story, um, even though it's based on your mother's childhood. When we first meet Tassa, it's a very dramatic scene uh, that I read in the introduction, uh, dated 1943, by which time she's about 20. But the book soon shifts back 10 years uh, to January 1933 with Tassa and her older cousin, Danik, in an attic. So tell us who Tassa is as a 10-year-old, her character, her personality, before the trouble begins. So yes, after that dramatic chapter, and then you, the, the 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 one that then um, um, is is you know begins at 1933. That story really it begins in this tiny village called Poitikamen, and that was my mother's village. And she's a precocious, spirited, and hopeful Jewish violinist, and she lives among her extended family of cousins and aunts and uncles. And she's a dreamer, and she loves music, and, you know, music, she, she, she sees the world through music, really. Um, and and that's, that's the kind of um, 10-year-old she is uh, when, when the story uh, really, you know, begins in that second chapter after, the, after that open. Um, and, and, you know, the narrative follows her, really, in this novel as she matures and struggles and eventually survives the atrocities you know, of a world at war. Um, and, and what is real unique about this struggle um, and survival of hers is that 
Her life really mirrored others who lived at the fringes of the battlefield. She wasn't in the central ghettos of Poland. She wasn't in a concentration camp. She lived in the eastern, southeastern border of Poland, what was Poland at that time. It's not Poland any longer. And so those individuals had a different experience. So tell us about her family. Uh, where do they stand in Podkamen society? Um, and, and well, you mentioned a little bit about what Podkamen itself is like, but to, who are her family? Well, she she's an only child. Her mother is uh, Halina, and her father is Solomon Brzezinski. Um, they live, um, her father's landowner. He's very well regarded in this small village of maybe 3,000 people. Um, It's it's like a spiritual cluster. Um, There are people of different religions. There's Jewish people. There's Catholic people. It's it's really defined by a lot of different churches um, uh, and and synagogues there. And um, he he, they live sort of outside of the main street, the main main street of of Point Common. Uh, where the rest of the family really lives, um, she walks. Her mother walks her to work uh, to, to school in the morning, and uh, she uh, joins her cousins. And she passes her grandfather's house, and it's it's a very close, close, loving, um, uh, peaceful uh, environment. So talk to us a little bit about Danik. Uh, by the time we see them in the introduction, they're already close. Uh, but they, in a sense, they've been close all along. Who is he? I mean, I, I identified him as her older cousin, but who is he as a person? He's a little bit older than she is. And what is their relationship like here in the beginning? Well, he's a couple of years older than she is. Um, he is um, one who teases her as an older cousin might. Um, he really is has become her best friend um, because this, it's such a close-knit family and it's such a small little village. They see each other a lot, and um, he, he's just to become such a steady companion for her. Um, uh, she, she's really more of a dreamer. He's kind of more of a solid um, solid character, uh, um, you know, and um, just has a lot of fun um, at her expense often. And what does he want out of life at this early point? I think at the early point, it's really unclear. He's really more just, you know, a boy having fun, um, a boy, you know, just um, not really thinking um, of his future. Um, I think that's probably more typical of boys maybe don't, you know, at that age, at 12, I think it was, he's 12 in 1933. Um, So he's not really forward thinking at that point. Um, He is ready to um, go to a boarding school um, some miles away from Point Common uh, soon after the, the story begins, because in the small village, they only have education that goes up to the sixth level or sixth grade as we know it. Uh, and if a family does have, um, you know, dollars to, to, to support this, families would, um, in wanting their children to extend their education, they would send them to, um, to board somewhere so they could continue their education. And in the case of both Donick and then two years later, Tassa, uh, they board with a family friend in a nearby um, town called Brody. 
Right, and Tasha attends a Catholic school there, even though she's Jewish. What is that experience like for her? You know, it's uh, it, it was a very natural experience. Um, you know, the the students all uh, were became a community together, and in a way became uh, somewhat of. A, a protection from the outside um, world as the world became perhaps more, um, you know, as, as anti-Semitism and whatnot started to permeate Poland coming from really from Germany. And so, you know, the students really were very harmonious with one another. And um, it, the, the funny thing about how they, they, uh, went about their classes different from here, uh, where uh, students change classes going from one class to another. Generally, the students stayed and the teachers moved, except for religion class. So for religion class, the students went to their respective Roman Catholic, you know, Jewish, um, and, and, and to those classrooms. But other than that, the students were in their own classes and their teachers would come in and... Um, and teach them uh, uh, whether it was chemistry or humanities or whatever. Uh, so it was a very close group, and it continued over several years, I assume. She gets there yes. at 12, and she's there until she's 18, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So even at 10, as you mentioned, uh, Tasha's already a musician, uh, and music plays a really vital role in how she copes with her emotions throughout the book. And in a certain sense, it echoes what's going on inside the book. Um, at the end of the prologue, you write, I love this. Uh, Within the silence, she could hear the lyrical melody of Tchaikovsky's Souvenir d'un lieu cher, which means memory of a beloved place. Um, it's echo of a beloved place blending into her own memories. And on the next page already, she hears music that played over and over in her mind. Um, is this also something left over from your mother's story? or And if not, why did you decide to make Tessa a violinist? Well, I think um, there, there are several reasons. Uh, I think as I approached the story, um, I felt that in writing it as a fictional story, that Tessa needed something to help her survive spiritually. And to me, music is very healing. So the idea that she would be a musician and she would, you know, have music uh, as, as really uh, something that she could, um, you know, really go to in these times of, um, you know, emotional and, uh, you know, these, these moments of fear and, and, and struggle... I just felt that 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 would be important. Um, I think also my mother did tell me <laughs> she had a violin, and um, she said she had a violin, you know, when she came to this country. As a child, I never saw this violin, and I never saw her play the violin. So, you know, I, I, she was no violin prodigy. We know that. And, um, you know, the other the other aspect of of um, why a violin versus maybe some other instrument is it just it, it the violin is a beautiful instrument and it has a, a range of emotion that can come from um, the, the kinds of pieces that um, uh, Eastern European composers um, wrote during that time and I just felt that it could really parallel the emotions of of Tassa and help me really write this story, um, 
you know, and, and so music really became an integral part of, um, of the story itself. Yeah, it's also easily portable. You can hardly run off into the woods lugging a cello. So exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, um, and, and objects were very, very important. You know, for those who did survive um, the war, it doesn't surprise me that my mother had this violin, even though she wasn't a prodigy. She had this violin still. She kept it with her, took it with her, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think you have a passage that, because one of the questions really is, is what does it allow you to do? And you've, you've, as a writer, what does it allow you to do? And, and you've mentioned what that is, that it gives Tasa a goal, it gives her a refuge. Um, but I think you have a passage that you're going to read that shows how music is, is intertwined with the story itself. Yes, um... There, you know, I've used it in in many different, really in many different scenes um, throughout the book. It, 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 as as we've talked, you know, it, it sort of integrated um, in in uh, in many different places. Um, but there is really one scene that is most dramatic um, in this book, um, and you know, it is it's really a, a point at which um, Gestapo officers arrive on horseback and stay in the barn above the bunker where Tasa and her family members are hiding. And at this point in the story, the family's subsided on only bread and water for almost a week, and they're clustered in the back corner of the bunker, so they're not directly underneath the soldiers. And claustrophobic, Tasa walks to the unoccupied front part of the bunker to be alone, and she soon senses Nazi soldiers moving above her, and she hears the, their muffled voices in this clipped and guttural German, and she panics. So I'm going to read just from that point um, on, and you'll see where the music starts to come in here. As the voices amplified, Tasa realized she was holding her breath and began a slow exhalation, trying to release the tension in her body. She thought about her childhood, the times her mother put her to bed at night, hushing and calming her by humming a melody. But the booming voices of the Gestapo men overhead shattered this image. Unable to quiet her thumping heartbeat, she worried it, was, it would expose her. The morbid and grating opening bars of Chopin's Nocturne Number no. 7 pulsed through her mind, and she strained to bring forth a full range of its dark melody. She inhabited the music, so matched with her own agitation, its restless and vehement power actually calming her, overpowering the sound of the Germans as the piece's climax melted first into a pleading melody that descended into melancholy, then into what she imagined as dancing streams converging under the umbrella of sunshine. She became aware of the soldiers' movement away from the stable, the resonance of their voices weakening. Listening closely, barely breathing, she caught the sound of a horse's whinny and a man's exertion followed by a weight being dropped. A saddle? She sensed the presence of a single Nazi fighter standing directly atop the ceiling panel and in her heightened state imagined he was not a man at all but an animal, a predator. Perhaps a bear or, more frightening, a wolf. She tried to keep her emotions in check but her exhaustion intensified her fear and panic. Noises in her head kept her from thinking clearly but then... Those reverberations began to organize into something else, a familiar tune. Her mind tried to locate it. Of course, it was Peter and the Wolf. Her school orchestra had performed it in Brody only two years after it premiered in Moscow. Tassa now thought back to Professor Fischel's lesson. She could hear the carefree melody of violins, their high notes meandering forth as Peter opened the gate from his home, a staccato array of sounds bringing to her mind the young boy 
frolicking and jumping in an open meadow. She saw the bird he met in that meadow, the chirping and singing of flutes, the music swirling just like the bird flying in circles of delight. As Peter continued his playful journey, the slow, lower tones of an oboe revealed a duck. It's quacking amid the birds chirping, the oboes and flutes and violins, now in a cacophonous dialogue. The sly and loping movement of a cat entered the scene through the nasal sounds of a lone clarinet. Each new instrument began talking to the others, meandering violins, chirping flutes, quacking oboes, the creeping clarinet. Discovering Peter's wanderings, his grandfather, in the form of repetitive, snoring bassoons, told the boy the meadow was a dangerous place. If a wolf should come out of the forest, then what would he do? Suddenly, the ominous bellowing of the French horns came forth, magnifying, marching, a wolf prowling in wait, drums rolling in the background, the weight and burden of the growling horns, almost like the rumble of thunder, began to dissipate into the frolic and gaiety of the strings as Peter captured the wolf and freed the animals. Playful meanderings, a marching wolf, a frolicking Peter, all blurred together with the music in her mind. The Nazi standing above her was no longer an animal, but a man, like her father and uncles. She imagined the soldier before this war, wearing street clothes, just a husband and father who took pride in wholesome pleasures, like a son's first step or a daughter's early words, a man who may have wanted nothing more than to watch his children grow up, live, and thrive in a peaceful world. She began to wonder then what had happened to bring about the metamorphosis of this man into a hunter of Jews. What changed for him? What scared him? Scared an entire country into judging and persecuting people with different beliefs. Did he ever question himself, or did he have no choice but to follow orders for his own survival? Her mind continued to wander, the music and news coming from the family's radio in Point Common, fused into Frau Rothstein's radio, then Joseph Knips. Tassa lost herself within vivid images of Grandpa Abram and Uncle Judah, of Cairo's black mane, of her mother and Frau Rothstein. She drifted in and out of consciousness. Her angst dulled. She sensed stillness above. Then hefty footsteps, at first close, becoming softer and weaker, retreating, then silence. That's a great passage, not only because the music itself is probably familiar to most of our listeners, but also it really captures um, her emotional experience, uh, those universal questions that you mentioned, um, her transition from one emotional state to another. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dan, you're welcome. It, it, uh, it was uh, uh, when, I, when I found passages like that, you know, in the process of writing, it was almost like a discovery, I have to say, Carolyn, um, because, you know, it, it really took a lot of listening to music to, to really find the right pieces that would help illustrate these, these scenes. Now, that's an interesting question. How did you pick out the, uh, the pieces that you choose? Well, you know, again, sometimes, um, you know, I, I would know certainly what the scene um, what, what I was looking for in a scene and, and, you know, a big part of my research was around music, frankly, you know, I, I, um, uh, really listened to a lot of music and, um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed classical music for many years. I, I took classical piano lessons. I'm going to date myself, but in the sixties as a youngster, um, my father's from Vienna. So classical music was something that, you know, was part of my, uh, bringing up, 
Um, and, and I knew a lot of, uh, and listened to a lot of, uh, wonderful violinists over the years. So, you know, I, I really ended up listening to a great deal of music as part of my research as well. And, and really, as I said, it really felt like a discovery when I hit on the exact piece that just made a scene come alive. Um, and interestingly, at some point in my process, I created an iTunes playlist so I could really listen and keep track of the music I was using or even considering. And then when I completed the novel, I decided to, to have my final playlist included in the back of the book. So a reader can actually refer to each piece reference chapter by chapter um, in, in my book. So um, it, it really became a very, very important part of, of what I was looking for. That's interesting. I mean, I use playlists, too, when I'm writing a novel to get the sort of overall sense, but none of my books deal with music specifically. But I, I did interview an author, Lauren Belfer, who wrote a book, a novel about Bach, and uh, she actually has a playlist on Spotify that people can connect to from her website with the various Bach cantatas and things that she references in the story. I think I have that book as one I want to read. <laughs> I, I have a pile of books up, and that is one of them that is uh, that, that seemed intriguing to me. Yeah, it's a very good book. And if you go to her website, you can find the link to the Spotify playlist if you have Spotify. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea of an iTunes playlist with the music that you were considering. Did you focus mostly on Eastern European composers? Yes, I did. It really was. It, it, it needed to parallel really what music would Tassa be listening to at that at that time. You know, um, uh, I mean that was just part of the general um, you know research uh, that I was doing. Really, you know, I, I needed to. Um, everything concrete in 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 the novel, I needed to. Um, establish really whether it was the music whether it was the clothing they wore the the um the coins that they used i I needed to really um and that's where my journalism background certainly helped in my research is just you know getting all those concrete elements um established um and then let the characters um live and 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 act and, and react uh within that world yeah, that is always the challenge, is finding these little tiny things that people, you know, don't bother to put in formal history books and things like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and I think you did a really great job. It all feels very authentic. Um, and I'm certainly not a specialist in Eastern Poland, but I've been studying Russia for a very long time. And so I do have some sense of what it was like in different periods. So Tasso is not the only musician in the story, um, although she's probably the main musician. She's the prodigy. Um, Frau Rostein plays the piano, and Danik turns out to have a wonderful singing voice. Um, talk a little bit about how that affects their interactions, their relationships, or their characters. Well, that's and that's a great, great observation, um, Carolyn. You know, it, it, by... Um, so many things, I guess, as you're writing fiction, things sort of sometimes happen as you're writing them. And it became very natural that Frau would have been, um, um, you know, a musician somehow herself. Um, and that enhanced the closeness uh, between um, her and, and, and Tassa. Um, and, and so she became sort of a little bit of the, uh, the teacher. When, when Tassa was a really young girl, she really, it was her grandfather, um, um, uh, you know, Abram, who, who really helped her um, 
established her, you know, practiced and, and, and motivated her. And then when she moved to Brody, you know, in a way she needed someone else to play that role for her. And so Frau Rostein really became that person. Um, Donick then, um, you know, turns out that he had this wonderful baritone singing voice. And, and so, you know, the three of them could practice together and, and it, it did create, you know, and, and you know, this closeness and uh, among them, as well as between she and, and Donick, it became this uh, commonality um, that, that they had uh, both boarding with, with, um, with Frau Rostein, but also at school. Yes, right, exactly. There, there's music at school and, and music is affected by the various things that happen at the school. Um, we're going to, going to move away now from the story because we don't want to give away too much of the plot. Um, so I'd, what I'd like is, uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the introduction is that despite the enormous amount of research and literature and so on on World War II, it's still relatively uh, unknown about the events in the East. Especially, This is one reason I was so happy to see your book, because... Um, a novel set in eastern Poland or western Ukraine or, you know, that this overlapping area that you're talking about, where a great deal of the brutality and the killings took place are still pretty rare compared to novels set in France or Germany or uh, Britain, so on, in the same time period. So can you, um, it's, it starts in 1933, when the year that Hitler was elected chancellor. Uh, talk a little bit about how the effects of Nazism in Germany play out in in Eastern Poland uh, during this period between 1933 and 1939, even before the war begins. Well, uh, you know the the, um, the 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 you know Germany as as soon as as Hitler you know becomes chancellor in 1933 things begin to to change. I will say, though, that those living on the fringes, um, you know, as, as Tassa's family on East, in eastern um, uh, Poland, and in, in these small villages, uh, things kind of, they didn't have the same kind of information that uh, those perhaps who were in, you know, Warsaw or Krakow or, or, you know, even in Austria, you know, things were a lot more evident of what was happening there. Um, and so uh, slowly tension was building in this community where Tassa was in Brody. And because this, in this novel, um, it's written in third person, close third person. So we see the world through Tassa's eyes, so to speak. So we don't see what we know now necessarily, or we don't see what maybe isn't in her in her lens, really. As she's she's looking at the at this whole situation from being, for example, in Brody in 1935, um, and and then you know as as. Um, you know, tension starts, she starts seeing it in the streets of Brody. She starts seeing um, where the the very religious Jews, uh, known as Hasidic Jews, um, who wear different garb um, and so are physically looking different um, and differentiated, um, and how that the, the townspeople are reacting to them. Um, so that, you know, is something that she is becomes aware of as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old. Um, and then, you know, um, what, what uh, you know, she starts hearing from, um, 
from from relatives. He had a relative during a summer home in nineteen summer of nineteen thirty eight, um, where things tensions really getting much much um, uh, you know more more intense. Uh, and and she has a, a cousin who comes back and lives in Palestine and comes to visit. It's Donick's older brother, and he you know you know lets everyone know that uh, that. You know where are you know what what you know why are they building a house you know her father's building a new house in in Point Common why is he investing in this what what does he think is going on in the world you know and and um, and, and so you know there's a there's a, a pretty intense scene among the family having you know what was a, a nice summer dinner together really um, but you know Germany was there were Nuremberg laws and 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 other laws that were taking place in Poland and um, you know Jewish uh, teachers for example couldn't teach in Polish public schools and there were limitations doctors and lawyers banned from you know Polish professional organizations things that are starting to happen discriminatory discriminatory uh, um, actions that were were becoming policy or law and so um, this was this was all going on around her and um, you know then then of course what we all the whole world learned uh, in November of 1938 this uh, um, crystal knock, which means the broken glass, where um, you know literally, uh, you know the streets. The, the, there were night-long attacks of, of Nazi stormtroopers, um, and um, that you know they were, and, and even German civilians who were burning and looting um, you know, thousands of Jewish-owned businesses and synagogues. And this was going on, um, and the world learned about it through radio and through newspapers. And and um, you know it was is really uh, you know a, a mob that that, that Jewish outbreak anti-Jewish outbreak taking place you know November of of um, 1938. So all this was leading up into um, the the war. Um, now the war began when Germany um, attacked Poland in uh, you know on September 1, 1939. Just prior to doing that, however, Hitler knew he had to um, do something about the Soviets so that that wouldn't be a problem. And so he worked out a, a, a sort of a secret agreement with Stalin, um, giving uh, the Soviets sort of this eastern swath of Poland to be to, under their control. As we know now, I don't, uh, you know, Hitler hadn't planned to leave that to Stalin, but but it allowed him to um, kind of unabated get into into Poland and, and attack and um, uh, and and so 17 days after the war uh, after after Germany attacked Poland um, suddenly this eastern swath of Poland um, began was invaded um, from the east by the Soviets and the Soviets took control of that of that area so it began it took control of that area that Tasa and her family where she schooled that was all then under the Soviet um, control and it continued to be under the Soviet control until 1941 when Germany attacked the Soviet Union right and that's where Tasa's experience begins to deviate a little bit from what um, many people in the West think they know about World War two um, because she is, she's still in Brody at that point. She's 16 years old. She's um, 
Would she be 16? Yeah, she would be 16 years old. So she, um, she experiences the Soviet invasion. And, and I should have clarified earlier, I realized that everything in the story is from her point of view because it's the, the entire story is from her point of view. So she's only encountering really the echoes of things that were going on in Warsaw or even further west. But she, um, when the Soviets first move in and they, are, they remain a presence, I mean, despite the invasion, the, the area now moves back and forth between... Soviet and it's Nazi and then it's Soviet. Um, she, the, the, the Soviets are initially experienced as oppressors and they introduce certain changes into her curriculum and so on. What kinds of, um, how should we call this, echoes of the Soviet invasion affect Tasa and her playmates? And you don't have to talk about it in terms of the specific plot of the novel, but just as the changes in the atmosphere in the book. Yeah. Well, the Soviets, it was, it was called Sovietization. Basically, they, uh, really all the institutions, um, you know, became dismantled. The, the whole state, they were, they were closed down and reopened under the Soviet, uh, appointed supervisors. That means the schools and other institutions, really. Um, in terms of her school, you know, she, um, uh, you know, they, they just everything, you know, changed. She, she, you know, the, the the language became. You know, the the main language was no longer Polish. It was it was it was uh, Russian, and uh, Polish literature and language studies sort of were dissolved. All these 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 cultural um, uh, elements of uh, that gave her such pleasure were taken away, and um, you know, the the authorities really tried to remove any traces of Polish history. Um, and and so much of Polish culture. So so you know she, it it became a very oppressive uh, environment for her uh, at that point. Um, these books she loved disappeared, and the work of these Polish writers she loved. Um, their uniforms were abolished, but there were these strict rules around dress code, and um, they they. Um, religious education was forbidden, so there was no longer they were no longer separated. Um, into these, uh, it became coeducational, and it was no longer a private Catholic academy anymore. Um, and you know, new teachers were brought forward, and you know, Russian Russian teachers, and uh, so so things changed quite a bit for her. And um, there was a lot of fear, um, walking around wondering uh, what would happen, and pe- students were sometimes just taken um, for you know, by soldiers, and no one really knew what happened and whatever happened to them. And this is also, um, you know, the height of Stalinism. So it's not like they're introducing Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. They're introducing, you know, how the steel was tempered. Yep. <laughs> this yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> so that's a real big shock after, because Tulsa, one of her things is that she's actually very good at languages. So she, she can already speak about four languages. She has very little trouble mastering Russian. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, she she also just you just had to wa- she had to watch herself. Uh, you 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 just you didn't know who you could talk to, who you could trust. Um, you know, she didn't want to talk at all about her family because certainly her father, as a landowner, would not be um, would be a, someone who would be targeted by the uh, new the Soviet uh, uh, philosophy. So she just kind of kept very to herself and quiet at this point. One of the uh, the quirks of history is that um, the 
many of the people who survived in eastern Poland and western Ukraine were deported by the Soviets. Um, one of the things that happened as the Nazis invaded was that the Soviets pulled back and they sent a large number of Jewish residents, especially women and children, into the rear of the Soviet um, line. So they were taken eventually to Siberia and in some cases to Kazakhstan. And as a result, not all of them made it. I mean, not all of the conditions were harsh and not all of them got to where they were going and, or survived the experience. But in many cases, they were better off than a lot of the people who were left behind, uh, who were just systematically exterminated. So um, one of the elements that I particularly like is that you mentioned this part of it. And I was curious if um, learning about this was a surprise for you or whether this is something, were you ever tempted to send Tasa along that part of the journey rather than keep her in, in Poland, which was, of course was necessary in order to, to continue to cover the war? Uh, no, uh, Carolyn, I actually, so, um, le- and let me back uh, up a bit here. You know, the, the, the novel being inspired by my mother's life, I, there were certain elements that happened, that actually happened, that I, you know, I sort of, even though this is fiction, I just wanted to keep those dramatic elements, uh, you know, into this story. And so one of those dramatic elements had to do with Tasa's mother being deported. My mother's mother, or my grandmother, was deported, actually. A large uh, group of of both Jewish or non-Jewish Poles were deported in February of 1940. And they... um, uh, so, so Tasa was in, the, in, in my book and, and what happened in true life here, uh, she was separated uh, from her mother. And so um, I, I, through, through her, her mother's ex, you know, experience, that's what allowed me to um, kind of get exposed that part of the, um, uh, you know, of, of the history itself. Um, you know, because that was huge, the deportation of, of, of individuals. Uh, uh, sometimes we even forget about um, and, and sometimes think of, of maybe the Jewish people who were um, deported and or killed during um, World War II. And actually, there were as many non-Jewish um, uh, uh, individuals killed and oppressed by, by um, both the, the Soviets and the Germans during um, this part of our history. Um, so, so there were there were a lot of a lot of both Jewish and Catholic Poles who were deported, um, and uh, um, this was this was in a way um, if they could survive those conditions, as you mentioned, they ended up in a way they were away from 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 then after 1941 uh, of having to. Um, Survive the Nazis, which which uh, um, was was its own terrible uh, challenge that most people did not survive. So, um, I'd love to hear the story of your grandmother someday. Um, I hope that she did make it back, but I won't. I won't ask if that's going to uh, give away secrets in your novel that you prefer not to. 
Um, so, but Tasha does remain, as you mentioned, and one of the things that happens is that she is helped by um, her Catholic neighbors. Yeah, and, and that's actually what we're seeing in the introduction is that they have been, and you mentioned it also during the passage that you read, you read, which is why I'm bringing it up, is that she is um, concealed by the um, by the friends of her father's, and, and she lives in this bunker. Uh, for quite a long time, at least a year. So I think that's an important element also to bring out about this period in history. I mean, it must have taken an enormous amount of courage for people to hide um, friends, neighbors, relatives. Well, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And and you know they risk their lives. I mean, you know, the, the uh, anyone who um, you know saved or hid uh, uh, Jewish families, um, if this was found, they were killed. You know, I mean, th- this is this was just um, quite um, quite risky. Um, and this family, so this family, it was uh, husband, wife, and their daughter, and they. Um, they, they, the 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 uh, the the father of the of the uh, family Joseph Knipp, he uh, had been more, uh, working uh, with Toss's father for many years, so he was kind of a part of the family, and he uh, um, ended up building um, uh, underneath his barn, sort of a bunker, um, to uh, you know to hide them and and tried to make it really as uh, livable as possible, um, you know, uh, complete with, um, you know, a, a, a fake entrance and openings made with pipes for ventilation, um, really, a, you know, space for them that, you know, had cots in there and did, did whatever he could um, to uh, to make it livable. But, you know, the fact is it was, you know, underneath the barn, you know, it was underground. There was very little light. Um, and certainly when, uh, as the scene that I read, when the Nazis came and uh, spent some time living in the barn, um, they couldn't get any food to, to the family. So, so you know, um, it, it was still a, a, a very difficult situation, and to consider being there for almost a year was, uh, you know, um, you know, was, was quite a struggle. On the other hand, um, you know, when, you know, when, when individuals were um, together in this case, and this is quite an unusual circumstance in my novel where I had multiple family members together, because that really probably wasn't the norm. I think people tend to be in hiding with one or two people. And this, these were five family members uh, together. Um, so, you know, there were still moments of levity, you know, during this this period, where um, they might have played cards, and particularly, you know, this this uh, Joseph Nip um, did everything he could to bring books and poetry books and and cards and newspapers to the family whenever he could um, to try to keep them, you know, sort of um, occupied. So it it was really a um, probably an unusually positive experience. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, also he lived quite a ways from you know the, he he himself was sort of out in the farmland. So it it was not a um, you know there were no ho- homes within uh, any distance to see them. Um, so they were able to be a little more isolated and and in that way uh, could 
could uh, hide them a little bit in a, in a you know safer um, uh, way. And this is also one of the elements from your mother's life, right? That she was hiding. Yes. Yes, it was. Like so um, t- on a lighter note, uh, there's a lot of great food in this novel. <laughs> Did you have to research that too, or is that part of what you inherited from your mother and grandmother? Well, um, you know, I have to say my mother was not the best cook, but <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, when my grandmother was, um, my, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the food was sort of bland. It wasn't really, we didn't really... Uh, uh, have some of the food that that uh, that, that I kind of um, you know included in 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 the novel. Um, I did have a, a great aunt who taught me how to make this rugula, this this pastry, um, and so the memory of that experience certainly found its way into this book. Well, early in the in the uh, novel, uh, there's a cooking scene. Um, Frau Rothstein, along with being um, a musician, and tosses musician teacher while she's in Brody, uh, she also is, is quite the baker, and there's a scene of her making rugula, uh, which is a, a pastry um, made of flour and sugar and butter and is filled with uh, nuts and sugar and raspberries, and, uh, you know, it's rolled up, it's, 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 it's uh, rolled out, and then... Um, rolled together and, and made into like a half moon. And there's this whole scene of, of Tasa and, and her, um, and her uh, um, landlady, her endearing, uh, endearing landlady, um, sort of uh, making this. It comes out of the oven. And it, 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 um, I had an experience of this with a great aunt who, who showed me how to make rugula. Um, so I took that, that personal experience into the book uh, and had a lot of fun with it. Um, and a lot of the other food that, that, that uh, um, you know, is in this novel is similar to the music that I needed to research, that needed to fit, you know, as, as uh, uh, Toss is walking to school and passing this bakery in her little village, um, I needed to come up with what cookie would, would, you know, might they have. And so I did the research to find the exact kind of, you know, honey ginger cookie uh, that, that they had at that time. So some of this, some of this is, uh, came from research rather than uh, true experience. Well, and it was all delicious. Um, so tell me, what would you like readers to take away from Tasa's song? Well, you know, I think from a historical um, standpoint, um, you know, th- there, there are soon going to be no witnesses to the Holocaust and to World War II. And um, I think it's critical for us to remember and to educate people um, about that time in history. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, the preciousness of memory and family and love is probably a message I hope is conveyed, you know, in this um, novel. Um, you know, as I was really writing deeper into the novel, Tasha's thoughts began reflecting the idea that she's made up of many people who've touched her life. And that's, in a way, how she kept them alive, Um in a way, how she kind of survived spiritually. She kept them inside her own mind. She was able to let their strengths and her love for them inhabit her. And I think that, you know, this is, you know, that's important. You know, it, 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 we are made up of so many people, and um, our past, uh, 
you know, takes us to where we are and, and, and uh, makes us who we are. So that's a message I think I'd like people to keep from Tasha's song. That sounds like a wonderful message. And what about you? Uh, are you? Is this your one and only novel, or are you working on something else now? Well, I have um, been working on a novel of linked stories. I haven't been working on it quite as um, diligently, just because uh, the publication of Tasha's song has, has uh, taken me um, to different cities and um, occupied a lot of my time. But um, I, I'm working on um, it's. Um, right now, it seems to be a novel of linked stories, and it revolves around um, one character, um, and it, 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 this character is, is, is a Jewish boy growing up in anti-Semitic Vienna in the 1920s and 30s, and um, becomes a teenage immigrant, um, adjusting to life in the Midwest as World War II begins, and then uh, becomes a... Um, uh, part of the U.S. Army as a military intelligence officer, uh, going back really into Europe and fighting the very em- enemy he barely escaped in 1938. So I'm trying to pull together, I have about 25% of it written right now, and I'm trying to pull together these stories collectively to, you know, weave a portrait of a man whose, you know, character is really built by factors out of his control and, um, you know, just reveals the challenges he faces as he moves away from his past. Well, that sounds very interesting. We'll have to look for that. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Linda. It's been my pleasure, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Linda Cass about Tassa's song. You can find out more about her at www.lindacass.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-K-A-S-S as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I've added blog posts about books sent to me that, for one reason or another, don't fit into my interview schedule. So the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.